Um, what'd you think of the workout today? My go-to is it sucked, yeah. but it sucked in a good way. It was tough. Yeah. Um, it was a grinder. It was not, did you switch the workouts last minute or was that all just like some sort of ruse to, <laughs> yeah. It was just a mental tell challenge to see what people did when we switched it. No. Oh, what did we do? I want you to tell me. Well, we wanted, no, we actually, we had two different pack workouts. One we ran last night that we built for hunters mm -hmm. and then we had a different one and at the last minute we just called an audible because we wanted to go to that one from last night was it the one that we did noticeably worse than the one that was originally on the whiteboard that already you know had my quads <laughs> quivering a little bit before we started i think it's just noticeably different the one that we ended up doing is is like one of those really long grinders where not one thing in that workout is overly hard, mm -hmm. but it's just the amount of work you're going to actually do for such a long period of time. Yeah, I, I got, I think you or somebody said it looked like I was just in the zone. It reminded me of old wrestling practices. Yeah. It's just head down. You know, if somebody's yelling at you to do something, you just do it. Yeah. And so by the end, I was just in that zone on, I think, school lunge number 185. Yeah coming up on 200 before some sled push and pulls i was i was definitely hurting for sure yeah it's like one of those just one foot in front of the other foot workouts but talk about modeling real life application in the woods because uh, oh yeah i've been there yeah packing an animal out yeah and taking one step at a time looking at like a down tree or deadfall and being like, okay just make it there yeah just make it there and then stop and that's what i was doing on those lunges i don't know if you saw me i'd be like five stop think about my life and where I went wrong to be here, do five more <laughs> and then have another existential crisis and then do it again. There's so many pack outs like that where it literally becomes like, I'm going to make it to that tree mm -hmm. and then I'm going to make it to that tree. Nate and I had one like that one time packing out a bear where we got into that like rotten snow Mm. and it was about waist deep and so about every third step you'd post hole through to your waist but those two steps in between <laughs> you did it and so you never knew exactly when you were going to fall through and it got to where we there was several times where you'd kind of crawl on your hands and knees because you didn't want to fall through up to your hips yep and it, it was definitely like i'm going to make it 10 feet and i'm going to take a break and then i'm going to make it 10 more feet and it, it was a true, that trip is pretty memorable because it was a true, like, 24-hour experience where we started, we started packing, like, at 5 p.m., and then we got, like, the truck back to town at, like, 5 p.m. the next day. Just, like, it was brutal. Yeah, I don't think I have a great comparison story. The closest I can get is Kyle, yeah, co-founder of Outfitter Guy that you met. And for those listening, this guy is at least six five he's just a abnormally tall. tall guy and he has <laughs> no torso he's just leg straight from his rib cage down i'm pretty sure yeah and obviously hunting with him same thing we weren't even packing an animal out we didn't get any animals on that trip but just following him around the back country oh yeah i'd be taking like i look like a kid i'd be taking five steps for every two <laughs> and then he'd get bound ahead of me and look back and i'd just be you know shuffling real quick trying to catch up and well, I bet he can move through the backcountry. His legs are so long. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. It's impressive to watch, <laughs> especially when you're watching from behind trying to keep up. He can really cover some ground and quickly, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those long-legged guys. There's so many of those guys that, like, have never been in a gym one day in their life. Yeah. Like, they, like, smoke Swisher Sweets and just, like, smoke you up the mountain. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's, well, he's double threat now because he's week three into the eight-week kettlebell program. Oh, yeah. So he's going to he, be a machine. Oh, yeah. He's like, man, tell Dustin I already lost like six pounds. You know, not that he had much to lose, but he's... Yeah, he'll be yeah. a beast this year. Yeah, when we go out bear hunting in a week or two, I'm sure I'll be sucking wind trying to keep <laughs> up. <laughs> so you got a you got a cabin in the middle of nowhere? Yep, yeah, about... What is it? Where are we now? 2023? We're in the future, right? Yep. Okay, well, about... Four years ago, pre-pandemic, 2019, went through a divorce with my ex-wife. 
I'd been living in Louisiana doing the whole just tech exec life. Yeah. You know, white picket fence, big house, flying to New York, San Francisco, putting 200,000 air miles in every year. Jeez. Shout out to American Airlines. Crazy. I'm still holding my status thanks to COVID. <laughs> Not that I'm going anywhere. Um, but, you know, went through an unexpected divorce. And at the time, I had been hunt curious. Yep. I had just started hunting right before the divorce. Um, we can go in that backstory in a little bit, but ultimately, I said, I want to live in the woods. I'd been to Idaho once on a chance trip and fell in love with it. On that trip, I saw elk, I saw antelope, I saw a wolf all in like a weekend trip out here. I'm like, I'm moving there one day. And then the opportunity just happened to present itself way earlier than I expected, and I took it. Dang. Yeah, and drove out to Boise from Louisiana, where we were at, got a month-to-month rental, and started looking at properties all over, and then eventually landed in Atlanta, Idaho. And that is, I believe, the smallest livable village that's accessible by road in the lower 48. Really? Yeah. There's 30, including the two kids my now wife and I have produced in the past four years. That's uh, part of the 30 yep. that live there? Well, it's 38 now. Jeez. 38 year-round individuals who live out there. No grocery store, no gas station. Closest city's Boise, which is the crow flies, is about 80 miles. So mile-wise, not too far. But year-round, there's one road in, one road out. It's 68 miles of dirt, forest service road that is often landslid in when we get a lot of rain mm-hmm. or avalanched in in the winter. This winter, Snow. yeah, five days it was shut down when we worked with the you know, the road crew that we have up there, the two-man crew to clear it. It took two days. That's crazy. Yeah. It's only one way in and one way out of that town. That is it. Man. Or is it like um, like mountain town deep in a canyon, like heavy snowfall? In the oh, winter? yeah. So we're – the town itself – sits about just under 6,000 feet. Mm-hmm. But we are at the bottom side of the Sawtooth Mountains. So you're looking at a 10,000-foot um, granite peak called Mount Greylock. That's kind of like the big focus point, looking north in the town. And we have mountain goats on there. We'll get out there as a town and just glass mountain goats. We did that two weekends ago, which was a lot of fun. But it is right at the base. It sits in a little pocket right on the headwaters of the Boise River, and then if you took a plane, you could hop over the mountains and you'd be in Stanley in like 20 minutes via plane. Mm. In the summer, sometimes we'll have like through hikers who will go from Atlanta to Stanley or Stanley to Atlanta. And it's about a 30 mile, you know, trip up and through the Sawtooth. That's insane. So it's pretty insane that you came from like corporate America, traveling all over mm-hmm. Louisiana, land in Boise, but then just kind of spur of the moment you find like a good deal on a cabin and went for it yes <laughs> very good deal <laughs> so you know it, it's the cabin of our dream well it was built by a bachelor so as we've grown our family there's a little bit of things that we would love to have been able to change yeah but you know two wood burning fireplaces so we live off that which is great but we back up to national forest land so you go out our back door you open the little French doors in our bedroom, and there's 3,000 acres of national forest land. So I can go run trap lines right out the back door. I shot my first bear with my bow off my back deck Crazy. in my underwear. <laughs> so it's just one of those things where there's so many opportunities. And for someone like me who was relatively new to hunting when I moved out west and then wanted to go all in, it was the perfect opportunity. It was there. It was every game species I wanted to hunt or trap. It was it was just a perfect combination and really yeah. worked out well. Yeah, you can go all in right away. Mm-hmm. Did you put any internet out there? Yes. Yeah, so like Starlink the, or something? We have Starlink now, but when we first moved there, Rural Telecom had a DSL line that had been run out to the town a long, long time ago. And it's about 10 megs up, and it's enough to do a Zoom call because I still had my day job yep. working in... You know, I was still attached to the matrix, so to speak, <laughs> uh, and had to do that to pay the bills. Yeah. And it worked. And then Starlink came last year to our area, and we've had that now, and that helps a lot. Um, 
it's also just a catch 22 because when we first moved up there, I hadn't enabled internet. So we were kind of going back and forth, my, my now wife and I, and we'd yeah. go up there and there's no cell service. So with no internet, you there's can't nothing. talk to anyone. Oh, it's beautiful. Man. It's just it, been a slippery slope of kind of still getting sucked back into it, but it's it's necessary. But yeah. when you get that full unplugged nature, it's amazing. Is that like an old mining town? Why is it there? Oh, I can give you the history, buddy. <laughs> so the town of Atlanta, Idaho, founded in 1864 uh, by a guy named Stanley, which is what the Stanley. town of Stanley's named after. They found a gold deposit, gold load there. Um, very remote, hard to get to. So it was really only accessible by summer. And it was from Rocky Bar, which is south of Atlanta, which used to be the county seat of Alturas County, Idaho. <laughs> I know. Uh, ask me how I know. But it was a boom town very quickly. So by 1867, I think there were 500 people there. At its peak, there were 2,000. Wow. Mostly Chinese immigrant labor, yeah. you know, pulling stuff out of the, out of the ground. Um, it went through about the 1880s when it was really producing gold. And fun fact, the Atlanta load pulled more gold out of it than the entire California gold rush of 49. Crazy. Yeah, so just an insanely rich deposit of gold. Um, and it actually has been producing gold since really up until the 1930s. There was still pretty active gold mining there. Now you have people who have claims. People still go up there to gold mine, but no active you know, huge operations anymore. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, like the gold dried up, people mm. move out and there's just a, a few 38 of you left. Yep. That's it. Um, it's funny. There was a sizzle reel I saw. There was a, like a discovery <laughs> channel show uh -huh. that they went up in 2017. So a year before I moved up there and they were interviewing the town and it was called the end of the road because it really <laughs> is the end of the road, but they made this whole like drama thing, like with the little townspeople and like skewed everybody's thing. Like, oh, it's pretty Dram interesting. Very dramatic. Oh, it was so dramatic. There's yeah. the nicest guy ever. And they're like, he's from Chicago. He'll kill you. You know, he's <laughs> making all the people at the end of the road sound really crazy, but just, yeah, just insane. Like preppers doomsday. Yeah. But yeah. you know, what's interesting about it? Like it is, end of the road. It's a small community. Everybody knows everybody, which has its ups and downs of knowing people's business. But the eclectic nature of the people that are out there is insane. You have people who grew up there, right? Mm -hmm. Went to school there when they actually had a school. Um, you have people who you know, were in the tech world like myself, who've now kind of just like bucked the system a little bit. Like, yep. let's go out to the end of the road and everyone in between. So it's really cool to just see the the community that goes there because it does force you. Like that's one thing I didn't know moving out there because you know, I grew up very suburban. Yeah. You know, I didn't know how to open the flue on my fireplace. Couldn't figure out why my fire kept dying and why I was freezing to death every night. Yeah. You get, you know, the avalanches and everybody pitches in, right? It doesn't matter what you're doing you can rely on the people in town to show up. Like mm -hmm. We all are part of the volunteer fire. We have more EMS personnel per capita than any town in Idaho. Yeah. Granted, because out of the 38 people, I think nine people are EMT certified. Yeah. So you got to have those skills to live out there. Yeah. And it sharp learning curve. Yeah. Very sharp. Um, but everybody else there makes you learn too and is willing to teach as well. That's the other big thing is, you know, it was, intimidating for me coming knowing nothing mm -hmm. but it was very kind of open arm like it was certainly a slow acceptance right oh i'm it, sure there was a vetting yeah. process <laughs> sure. for sure like what is this guy doing out here yeah but you know eventually you kind of break down those barriers and now everybody up there's like family yeah community is much more like real and tangible yeah. in those small towns and ironically, I went up there to get away from all that, you know, yeah. bad divorce. I just wanted to be a mountain man. You know, <laughs> I wanted to just go run trap lines and hunt animals and, you know, just screw the world. Yeah. That was my mentality. And then the actual environment broke that down and humbled me in such a way that I had to reach out to the community. And then the community was just, you know, They're amazing. Help. Yeah. That's cool. Mm-hmm. And what year did you start doing Mountain Tough? The year that I moved out there. Okay. So 2019. How'd you find it? Do you remember? I think just 
internet. Yeah. Like just general searches. So I mean, for for context, when I moved out there three months prior, I had shot my first deer. So I had a cooler full of deer meat mm-hmm. from Tennessee. <laughs> deer or like a you know just a tree stand. Yeah. And mind you, I'd failed multiple times at hunting before that from a tree stand, but I finally connected, got a nice little eight point buck with my ex father in law, and you know we got it processed. I didn't do any of the processing. You know, take whole deer. No, no field dressing, no nothing. <laughs> Take it to the processor. All of a sudden, it turns into like these beautifully packaged, you know, deer steaks and you know ground meat. And I thought I was, you know, hot stuff. Like, yeah, I can, I can kill an animal, but I didn't know any of the other stuff. Yeah. So all of a sudden, I'm in this cabin. I'm an Idaho resident. I'm putting in for tags. And I was like, I had that moment where I'm like, well, I don't know anything. <laughs> so it was two things. One, I knew I wanted to archery elk hunt. Yeah. So I ended up going with an outfitter my first year. So I found an outfitter, you know, eight months before. So maybe like February of 2020, I reached out to an outfitter. He's like, I got time for you in September. Come out to the White Cloud Wilderness. We'll go hunt archery elk. And it was a pretty much immediately after that, my whole mindset went to, Okay, how do I learn everything that I can about elk hunting? So it was get in shape. Get well, I mean that was yeah. on top of the list, but yeah. it was like, how do you bugle? You know, I go buy a reed and just make like dead animal noises in my apartment for a little while <laughs> in the cabin, uh, and trying to listen to Corey Jacobson on Elk 101. Yeah. And then just through that kind of thread, it was like, well, here's mountain tough. Like if you want to get in shape, do this. Yeah. And you know, I came from a wrestling background, CrossFit background. <laughs> So I thought I was in shape and, you know, I was in shape at that point. But then when we moved to the cabin, I would go out on hikes and those hikes <laughs> would annihilate me. Just crushed. Cause you know, again, I came from the Southeast. You got elevation. Yeah. I mean, I, a, a hill for us is like a little above sea level Yeah, and you know, that might wind you, but I thought it was easy peasy, the but then I train yeah. 7,000 feet tons of deadfall and i'm talking like a backpack with a peanut butter and jelly in it and i'm puffing and puffing (laughs) and then you know having that realization and mental come to jesus of like okay hypothetically i take a bone arrow 15 pounds put it on my back i hike with food a tent whatever and then i actually kill an animal then what first off i need to figure out how to butcher a animal because i still hadn't done that by yourself by yeah, myself no help. and then like having those hikes mentally putting myself there like how do i put up help insert how heavy a quarter is on my back i'm gonna die mm-hmm. <laughs> like or the meat's gonna spoil or you know i'll kill myself on the mountain trying to get it off so i'm like okay i need something specific yeah i've always been into domain specific training mm-hmm. so then stumbling across mountain tough i was like well this must be it you know, I've never done pack training, heavy pack training. Um, and I found 4570, which I don't know if that was the first year you guys had done that or the second year. That's the first one, yeah. Okay. And I did it. And I waited until we were nine or 12 weeks out and really hammered home. And it was terrible. Like, it was great. Yeah. But, you know, doing it at the cabin, at elevation. And I think we were talking earlier, but, you know, I would set aside an hour a day because you guys lied to us. And you said it's an hour workout. But I think there was like some fine print or an asterisk there that I missed. It's an hour if you're really fast. Oh, yeah. And uh, that was not me. So, you know, I'd be filling my sandbags. I went to Cabela's, got all that done. I was dialed in. First workout took like two hours. <laughs> yeah. Just torched my day. But, you know, I did that religiously up to the hunt and um, I felt ready. Sweet. Which was awesome. And that's the one you went on an outfitter with? I went with an outfitter out in the white clouds, and it was higher than the town we live in. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we got out there. We horsebacked in, so we pack trained in. It was some wall tents way out in the white clouds. Beautiful terrain. I felt ready. I was in shape. I'm like, if the opportunity presents itself, I'm going to nail it. And we got to the wall tents that first night. And they said, we're just going to walk over here. It was almost dark, so we weren't going to go hunt. We were like, we're just going to go out and play some scenarios, like yeah. you know, caller, shooter, that kind of thing. And we walked maybe a mile. And I had to hide my heavy breathing from the guide 
the elevation ten, at 10,000 feet. Yeah. I didn't think that that, you know, 6,000 to 10,000 would be that much of a difference. Mm-hmm. But what I credit Mountain Tough with, I caught up real quick. Yeah. You know, like it was so that first day, adaptation. it took a little bit of an adaptation. It was tough. But then by the next day, I felt fine. But, you know, we put in seven days, I think 60 plus boot miles. Wow. Yeah, it was a lot. And I ended up on the fifth day having an opportunity, which I whiffed. Uh-huh. And then I was able to re-knock an arrow and whiff again. So missed it, two shots. Missed two shots. Two bowls. One bowl. Same bowl. Same bowl. Dang. Third. Well, first shot I was dialed in for fifty yards because I misranged. Uh, second one I re-ranged correctly and then I just whiffed. Crazy. Beautiful. Beautiful. Like three hundred class bowl. And <laughs> that that mental toll of oh, yeah. missing that and then not having a single sh- chance again the rest of the trip. Yeah, missed that one shot. Going home, mm-hmm. crazy. That's wild. Yep. And so that was your essentially your real hunting experience. Yep. You'd done a little bit of tree stand hunting yep. in Tennessee. Yep. Where Where did you grow up as a kid? Georgia. Georgia. Yep. In the suburbs. In the suburbs, you know, it was one of those things like hunting was always on the periphery. It's not like I wasn't exposed to hunting. My uncle hunted. My grandfather hunted. He used to go do like African safaris and mm-hmm. hunt. And I'd always see the stuff on his walls. He had a cabin. And I was always enamored with like the mountain man stuff. But for whatever reason, I never got the itch as a kid and I never got pushed into it, which hindsight's probably good because I probably would have pushed back because that's just my nature. Yeah. Um, but it was a little bit of a bummer that I never, you know, got taken along. But my dad didn't hunt. My granddad didn't hunt. It just wasn't in our direct nuclear family. So yeah. yeah, it just didn't happen for me. Yeah. If it's not close with like a dad or someone really close to the family, it's yeah. hard to get to where you're actually getting out there and experiencing and learning some things, especially like the butchering and the field dressing, yeah, shooting your rifle, learning how to shoot, siding in mm-hmm. archery is the same. Like it, it takes a, it takes quite a few years to get enough time to, to create that exposure. Yeah. Um, but getting into it as an adult, I have conflicting thoughts, right? Like, of course I wish maybe as a kid now, because it's a passion of mine now, like, yeah. man, I missed out on all those years, all those potential like learning opportunities, but hindsight is what it is. I was a young, dumb kid. Yeah. I probably would have done some really stupid things or maybe lost interest you know, maybe circled back. Who knows? But you know, I think things all happen for a reason. They do. Yeah. And I have so much more passion. And the other thing is like, I have the resources too. Like, you know, I've talked with some people who've been hunting their whole lives. And from the time I went like boots on the ground in Idaho, I've probably done a lot more hunting than a lot of people have. Yeah. Right. Not in all cases by any stretch of the imagination, but I talked to some guys are like, man, you've done way more hunting than me, but you know, I'm doing spring bear, Turkey, you know, then I'm going out of state and doing mule deer in Arizona or Havelina and just mm-hmm. kind of going all over the place just because I have the passion and the means. Yeah, you're going all in oh, yeah. at an older age with more resources. How old were you when you did that guided trip in Idaho, the f- that white cloud one? 30 or 31. Okay. Yeah. So I think I got my first hand-me-down bow from a buddy when I was 29. And that was in Louisiana. And I built a little range in the backyard because I am a master of none. I am the most okayest person at about everything. (laughs) And I knew it. So I built a range behind our fence in a neighborhood, suburban neighborhood in Louisiana, and, you know, watched some John Dudley videos online, you know, bought a knock to it release and tried to figure out how to just pull the dang bow back, which was a battle in itself. I dry fired it once, once I finally got it, you know, back and somehow didn't jump string or get the strings off the cams yeah or like hurt myself crazy but hucked a neighbor or man, i always worry about this that someone's gonna be listening but i did huck an arrow into a neighbor's roof <laughs> you know just all the typical dumb things that you can happen when you're trying to learn on your own oh yeah for sure without much guidance Mm-mm. at all and so then through that whole experience you decided to write a book about adult onset hunting yeah how did that idea kick off? Where'd that come from? Yeah, well, so I had started in Louisiana, um, got a bow, learned to 
hunt, I'm using air quotes here, went on a guided, another use for air quotes, pig hunt in Arkansas, which was pretty much just some yokel in, you know, middle of nowhere, Arkansas. I was like, yeah, you can just come shoot as many pigs as you want. <laughs> Had a corn feeder. Um, and he plopped me and a buddy who I started with bow hunting in a tree stand and, you know, I had every scenario played out in my head for that first hunt, which was, you know, if the pig comes in from this way, I'm good. If it comes from that way, I'm good. I felt practiced and ready, but I never prepared for the ultimate outcome, which was nothing, right? Mm-hmm. We sat in a tree stand for two days, eight hours a day, freezing to death, never saw a single pig. And, you know, that was my first intonation, like, okay, like this hunting thing's not easy. Even tree stand hunting. It's not guaranteed. Never a guarantee. Yep. And oftentimes from like a mental aspect, you don't prepare well. Fail. Exactly. And that's, you know, statistically. You're, you're failing a lot. A lot. Yeah. And a lot more than I was expecting. So I went through that first experience, then got my first deer and then moved to Idaho, like within a matter of six months. Mm-hmm. So this was all a quick succession. Like it was on there. And when I actually moved to Idaho, my ex-wife and I, you know, she was an FBI special agent, amazingly smart woman, jujitsu world champion, because that was our kind of lives before. Yeah. Um, but we had an actually pretty amicable divorce, unexpected, but amicable. Mm-hmm. So I originally thought I was going to write a book about divorce and like how to be kind to each other and do that. Because I'd written a book before and I liked to write. So that was kind of where it was going. But as I went down the real hunting journey in Idaho, talking, learning to trap, learning to hunt big game, the idea morphed and it was more about a reflection on me. I'm like, man, like, I don't know how I would have taken this divorce had I not had this outlet that I just so happened to start dabbling in a year prior. Gets your mind off a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. And just the growth that I was experiencing as an adult, Mm -hmm. right? You know, 30 year old, now 35, you know, it's just been exponential. I credit all that to hunting, the hunting community from the physical, the mental, and just the appreciation for, you know, the lives we ultimately take, which is a big part of it. Yeah. Crazy. So then you kick out the book, Turning Feral. Yep. And have you got a lot of response from readers where they're like, man, I'm an adult onset hunter as well. It's like a lot of relational people like reaching back out to you. Yeah. And that's been kind of one of the nicest things is that response. I get really three types of responses. One is the negative, you know, Mm. which hurts. It hurts so bad. I I can't (laughs) lie that it doesn't hurt. There's a couple one star reviews on Amazon that just kill me. Um, But it's that response of like, I don't believe you or you haven't put in your dues. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And and I get it. You know, there's people who've been doing it their whole lives. So there's that response. Yeah. But the overwhelming majority has been from people who've been hunting their whole lives. And it's been the response of, wow, I kind of forgot what it's like to go through that. And oftentimes people will say, hey, like, this has helped me so much because I've been trying to get insert family member or friend into hunting and often they've turned them off in the past because they bring them along and they just expect them to know everything. Mm -hmm. And one of the points in the book that I really try to get across is it's okay to fail. And like, it's a little bit of a humorous book, but it really is kind of a chronicling of my failures following a very steep learning curve as an adult of like learning to gut an animal. Yeah. It's not easy when you don't have a mentor right over your shoulder. Yeah. But those hunters that have been around a long time been like, man, I appreciate just this viewpoint to bring me back to what I felt like when I was an eight-year-old kid and my dad was dragging me along. That's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because I have two daughters, and last year was my first chance to take my oldest daughter on Montana's new apprentice season. Mm -hmm. So now in Montana, you can have a mentor and hunt at 10 as an apprentice, and that's Mm. kind of a new thing. When I was a kid, you had to wait until you were 12. And so my daughter and I trained all last summer and got her ready on her rifle for her apprentice season. Mm-hmm. So you can only shoot deer and you can only, um, they get the chance to hunt in this youth only season. Yeah, And it was very similar for me where it was like, wow, this is like reinvigorating to 
be back out here hunting with a kid because mm-hmm. I think there are so many things that I took for granted and didn't realize it. And you just didn't, we just didn't know how lucky we were to, like I was born and raised out here. Mm-hmm. My dad's from a family of nine, so he had seven brothers. All of them were big on like getting us out fishing, backpacking, hunting, hiking. And so we were exposed to it like at six years old or, yeah. or younger. And it was just what we did all the time. And so to to go back out with Ava, my oldest daughter, and see her like just get so excited about setting up camp and then so excited about like how bright the stars are at mm-hmm. night when no one else is around. And it's all those little things you forget that, you know, that you don't realize like, how much knowledge has actually been poured into year after year after year mm-hmm. after year to like give you the skills that you have now. It doesn't feel like a lot until you really look back and analyze like, like my daughter at 10, of course, she shot a great buck with a great hunt. My dad was with us. So we had three generations out there. That's awesome. It was like the coolest thing ever, but that was like, her first experience learning how to field dress a deer by herself with me helping like at 10, it takes, it's like, it's really intimidating. There's a lot that goes into it and it's hard to learn what to do from like a video without someone over your shoulder, like helping you. So to, to go through that as an adult, I'm sure is, is super fascinating. Yeah. Well, the inverse is true. To exactly what you said, you had three generations. Yeah. You got all this knowledge, what would be probably what sixty years worth of hunting knowledge, to then guide your daughter who was already intimidated. Mm-hmm. But then you take the adult onset hunter, which is a growing community, right? And there's mixed feelings about it. You know, getting yeah. people out in the field and opportunity lost, things like that. But you know, I think there's something to be said for people doing mentoring and helping other people along because, you know, Ava's been exposed to it her whole life. Yeah. Now you take your buddy, Jim, who's been going to the CrossFit gym with you, seen you hunt, became hunt curious himself, maybe went and bought a bow and learned to hunt. He's like, hey, man, do you mind if I, like, tag along? Mm-hmm. He's at a bigger disadvantage than Ava. Yeah. And how do you start to bridge that gap and help them? And there's just a big opportunity for that kind of, openness in the community, I feel like, and I felt it for sure. Like there are people who are defensive, yeah, but there's also a vast majority that are more open and welcoming and want to mentor, which is an amazing thing. Yeah. I think it's really amazing. Cause I think like, like mountain tough's big call to action last year was like m- mountain toughers need to book something really difficult outdoors and mm-hmm. just go do it. And most of the time, backcountry hunting scratches that problem. And it doesn't have to be backcountry hunting, but the things that it can teach humans is so overwhelmingly positive Mm -hmm. in terms of life change. Like if someone, if someone books like you did, like a September archery elk hunt out west with an outfitter, or if they just plan a DIY hunt and do it themselves, instantly they get that Spartan effect where they're going to start training for that event. And mm-hmm. so, like, once it's on your calendar, then all of a sudden, like, you're waking up earlier, you're pushing your workouts a little harder. Just because this thing is on your calendar, all of a sudden, like, your mindset shifts. But then the training for that experience is phenomenal even learning a new skill like a, a bow, but then the real magic is like outside, there's going to be some elements thrown at them that they've never seen before. You can't control the weather. You can't control what animals are going to do. And that's where you really see the life change kick in. Like it can change the trajectories of, of someone's entire life. And Case in point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It's really cool. Yeah. It's um it's hard to quantify too for Mm. people who haven't done it, you know, and somebody like myself who I never understood despite being tangentially exposed to it, Mm -hmm. the benefits of hunting. And that was my 
young, dumb interpretation. Like, oh, well, you just go kill an animal. So it is what it is. But there is this primal connection that you end up with the land. I'm not going to say the animal because oftentimes you don't even get that opportunity, but you start to stack those things on top of each other. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's just given me appreciation for what's actually important to me. You know, and that's been my battle because I came from the linear corporate career trajectory to kind of bucking that, like keeping it. Like it yeah. is, again, I am fully plugged in the matrix. I admit that. <laughs> and it pays the bills and it pays for hunts. Yeah. But that's not where my passion lies. My passion is definitely aligned with being outdoors. And I've been able to, with my family, build that life, right? We have this cabin. Yeah. We live out there. I can still do my day job, get on my Zoom calls. You know, groom a Jira board, <laughs> do all the other things that you got to do. And, but then I can walk outside, have no cell service, yeah. walk outside and see a deer, an elk, an antelope. And I know that's not accessible for everybody, um, but trying to, or at least putting yourself in those situations, whether that's just a hard event on your calendar each year yeah, or an actual hunt is it opens up a lot. Yeah. Now you have two young kids that you're exposing all that to already mm -hmm. and like their passion for the outdoors at that early age, like will be, will be a game changer for sure. Yeah. We were talking earlier, but my little daughter just sat down in the woods out there for an hour and played with pine straw. But yeah, it was fun. <laughs> Cause I get to carry her on trap lines. So this winter I had a little sled yeah, and I took her out on my beaver trap line and we went and pulled out beaver and she had a great time sitting there petting it. And then, you know, it was a family affair when we got home because then you got to skin the beaver, flesh the beaver. My wife helps me hoop all the beavers and punch holes, and my daughter's sitting there helping and, yeah. you know, just having a blast of a time. That's amazing. Yeah, I, like field, like butchering and field dressing with my kids has been the coolest thing ever because, like, we butcher all our, our own deer and elk, mm -hmm. and they've been helping me since they were, like, three or four, just, like, out in the garage cutting meat. It's like in Montana, it's always super cold when you're butchering your deer and elk. And so we'll have like little space heaters on mm -hmm. the grinders out. And it's really cool because they'll always be like, Dad, is this the deer I helped butcher? Is this mm -hmm. the elk like trezo that I helped make? And they know that whole like circle of life. They know like, like Dad shot this. Mm -hmm. I helped him cut it up. And now we're eating it for dinner. It's yeah. like super black and white. It's pretty cool. Like we haven't gotten that because we have a two-year-old and an eight-month-old. But, you know, our two-year-old's eaten pulled barbecue beaver tacos, right? Mm -hmm. And loved it. And you know, I grew up in a household that was very vanilla. Yeah. My mom is a chicken nugget kind of gal. <laughs> no offense, mom. I love you. But, you know, no mayonnaise, no avocados. I didn't have an avocado until I was 24. You know, crazy. Yeah. So like we just did not eat we didn't have a wide palate. It was very basic. Spaghetti, pizza, not necessarily healthy stuff. Yeah. But it wasn't a wide variety. So now being able to as an adult learning that wow, I really love all these foods and they're really great for me, to be able to go ahead and pass that down and like see that not translate to my daughter is it's empowering to me and my wife because we both love to eat a wide variety of things and to see our kids love it, even yeah. at a young age, and just be like, oh, this is good. Yeah. And not have that stigma around it. Yeah, I love when kids are just able to try things, even mm -hmm. if they don't like it. Like, just that courage to try something, mm -hmm. I think, is powerful to, like, create that at a young age. Yeah. We're on that path, so hopefully it sticks, you know. Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm sure it could <laughs> revert at any moment, but yeah. for the time being, we're going to keep serving it up, and, you know, hopefully they can continue to enjoy it. That's awesome. And you've done some other writing as well, so some some fiction and nonfiction. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things of trying to figure out where your passions lie. You know, again, corporate wage slave, fully admit it. Uh, but I'd love to be a full-time writer one day. I'd love to do taxidermy. So I've been exploring these other areas that kind of relate to the outdoor world. So mm -hmm. this book was all about outdoor life. I've written two fiction books, and I have a three-book deal with a publisher in historical westerns all about Idaho history. So one is specifically set in Atlanta, Idaho in the 1860s. It's called <laughs> The series is called The Bone Scraper. It's kind of like Louis L'Amour 
meets Quentin Tarantino. Awesome. So if you like a, a good old Western with a good bit of violence, it's, it's a great book series for that. The second's in the Awahis, and the third one is going to be set up in like the Island Park area. Dang. So it was it hard for you to switch from nonfiction to fiction? Y- yes and no. So I, I've always been performance-oriented to a fault. Mm-hmm. So when I would read, I love to read, always did. My grandfather, I credit him with a lot. Like when I was 13, 14, he said, there's a deal that I'm going to give you. If you ever want a book, I will buy it for you. Because he's like, if you ever want to learn thing, it's in a book. He didn't know about Google, so uh, <laughs> you know, it wasn't on his radar. But yeah. nonetheless, he's like, if you want to do it, go to the library, get a book. And he said, I'll buy you a book. If you ever want a book to learn something, I'll buy it. And he stuck with it. And Dang. I took advantage of it. So it was all nonfiction books. You know, I think like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, just performance-related yeah. stuff, or like a Dean Carnaz's book on like Marathon Man, yeah. things that I was interested in at the time, performance-based. Um, so I read nonfiction my whole life. And I felt like if I was reading and I wasn't getting an edge or something out of it, then I was wasting my time. So like I'd turn my nose up and be like, oh, I feel reading Harry Potter. It's a waste of your time. Mm-hmm. But then, just literally this past year, my wife's like, let's let's read a fiction book. And I rolled my eyes. <laughs> and then she was smart. She picked, uh, what's the the Jack Carr series? Terminalist. Yes. Yeah. So we got that first book, and we read it, and I really enjoyed it. And like, it actually like flexed my brain a little bit. I'm like, well, that wasn't bad. Like, yeah. I don't know why this was a boogeyman in my head, like I was going to get dumber from reading a fiction book. <laughs> and then I was like, I think I could do that. And I'm big into trying to challenge myself to do things. So I was like, I'm going to write a book. So I wrote a book in six weeks. I researched it. I went and sat at the Atlanta Historical Society for a couple of weeks, had an idea in my head, and got it on paper. So and that then, first fiction was in six weeks? Six weeks. Dang. But, I mean, that's pre-editing. Yeah. And then it took several months to shop it around to a publisher. Yeah. And then I'd been toying with the second one. And then when I signed a deal with the publisher... Then I knocked out the second one, and then I've been procrastinating on the third. Which do you like better at this point? I like the fiction. More fun. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I've actually, you know, like, this book was fun to write because it was a little cathartic, and it was about an area I'm passionate about. But I get excited to wake up. Like, I'd be in the middle of the day. I'm like, oh, I should do that to that character. No one will see that coming. Or, you know, <laughs> think of some twisted way to kill somebody off. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I'd, like, crowdsource, like, really weird ways to kill people off from my <laughs> friends, which is probably a weird text string. But, you know, weave those in. It's a lot of fun. It was just a, it was a different creative outlet for me. And so far, I've enjoyed it. So we'll see how far we can take it. Yeah, I bet that's, like, a really good creative outlet, almost like, it's almost like meditation therapy where you're just like clearing out your brain away from all the work and just thinking of crazy stories and how you oh, can yeah. twist the plot. And well, and it's also like if it's based in an area you're used to. So like the first one was in Idaho in Atlanta. So I could put myself in those shoes. Like yeah. well, what would it have been like here then? What would they have been feeling? And same in the Oahe, same in Island Park where I've done some elk hunting too. So it's a little bit of fun just to play that back in my head and think about, okay, I've been there. I've got a pretty good idea of what that terrain's like, and I can build a better picture. Sure. And throughout this whole throughout this whole journey, since that first uh, elk hunt with that outfitter up until now, you've been like consistently doing mountain tough that whole time. Correct. So you've kind of you've kind of seen mountain tough's evolution as well and and done a wide variety of our programming. Mm-hmm. It's been interesting to watch and beneficial, right? Because we talked about when I did the first 4570 program. I think you guys had 2 minute videos, just like a little motivational speech, like yeah. this is going to suck. Enjoy. Uh, And then you had the workout listed. So you'd have to pause it, you know, write it down on your whiteboard. You might demonstrate some of the uh, exercises that most people might not have heard about, like monkey plagues or, you know, the 180 squat jumps of the pack. (laughs) And you're like, okay, I know what that is now, but I'm going to forget midway through probably have to go back to the video. And like I said, you'd spend two hours doing a workout that you promised be an hour. (laughs) move on and it was great and it got me to where i wanted to go but then as it's gone along it's been amazing to see a the new studio Mm -hmm. it's amazing but the 
co-coaching and adapting to different levels of fitness. So first and foremost, just the ability to hit play yeah, and follow along with the athletes that are in the lab. Fantastic. Because that takes away the cognitive load for me to have to go write it down, pause the video, go back. If I forget a movement and just watch them go. No distractions. No distractions. It's yeah. great. And coached, right? You know, it, it's, I will say the demons come out, especially in the 4570 at about minute 45. Yeah. And, you know, the difference between me doing a half-hearted 180 jump squat where mine looks real pathetic <laughs> versus having Sarah or somebody on the screen or you Yelling. go, don't give up form. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we don't sacrifice for, you know, we're not doing CrossFit burpees. We do full pushups here, you know, mountain tough, but, but hearing that, you know, it does click and it, it's not the same as being in person, but it does help you get the reps and it helps you get them cleaner than when it was just, here's the workout go. It helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And then seeing those other athletes that are like working right alongside with you Mm -hmm. and, and seeing like how they're struggling, how you can keep up with them. Well, even the coaching points. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I, again, when you're there by yourself, like you, you let stuff slide more. It's oh, just, yeah. just the nature of it. Yeah. But then if, you know, somebody's on the screen and they're doing step ups and they're not activating their glute at the top and really lifting that knee high and you hear them correct that, you can kind of, you can self-assess a little bit in that oh, moment yeah. and be like, oh, yeah, I'm not doing that either. Yeah. And then you kind of pep up a little bit and at least get another rep in like that before you go back to slouching. I agree. Yeah, I think it's a cool way to run through a program. Like when we're not in the lab, a lot of times my wife and I, like on the weekends or during the week if we're at the house, not here at work, and we're looking for a workout, mm-hmm. we'll go to the MGDs because – I know, like, I can hit play. No, you don't, because they're not a catalog, <laughs> and you can only hit the one on Friday. No, we'll do the Friday one through the weekend. So, like, if I'm home on Saturday... I'm speaking for the people here, by the way. We need a catalog <laughs> for MGDs. Yeah, we've been hearing that. We we need, like, a, a bank of the top 20 or something mm-hmm. for people to go through. But I'll do it, and I'll hit play. And I love it because th- I won't get distracted yeah. where on even our own self-guided programs, if I'm at home, because I have my phone and I need to revert to like, hey, what was that movement? Then my buddy will text me and now I'm distracted. Yeah. But the MGDs hit play and it you just know like you're going to get a phenomenal 30-minute workout, like no questions asked. Yeah. The other cool evolution that I'll, I'll touch on here is the 4570. My wife did that with me. And... You know, my wife is an athlete, but some of those were killer. Yeah. And she has now had two kids. She, we just had our second kid nine months ago. Figured that out. <laughs> Got the math right. <laughs> nine months math. ago, yeah. Um, and being able to revert back and do the on-ramp. So just the, the different scaling options that are available now for individuals who, you know, maybe took a little time off. Yeah. Or had a child. And being able to get those skills back and build up from a base instead of jumping right into one of the self-guided programs has been amazing. Uh, and my wife's a great testament to that because she, over the last nine months, I think even a couple weeks postpartum, she was doing the on-ramp program. That's so cool. Yeah, and she loved it. And now she's pretty into the dailies, huh? She is very much into the dailies, also wanting to have a catalog, um, <laughs> but very much into it and loves it. That's awesome. Yeah, we got our autographed Sarah shirt today from Sarah. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. So that's this is not going to air before Mother's Day, is it? No. Okay, that's her yeah. Mother's Day gift. <laughs> <laughs> to kill two birds with one stone. Brilliant. That'll be awesome. Cool. And so now your career has taken another spin. Oh, yeah. And another spin. And now you're getting ready to launch a new company mm-hmm. that you've been working on for a while. Uh, the Outfitter Guide. Mm-hmm. What is the background information there? Well, the background information there is that we need to get it built and launched. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're fourth in inches right now. But um, when I came out to Idaho, started hunting, um, got involved with Idaho Trappers Association, got involved with 
Idaho fishing game, just because I like to learn all the ass or different views into areas that I'm interested in. Yeah. So I've made a lot of friends in a lot of those different areas and what, including you and other people. And it's made me realize that I want to align my professional career with this industry. And I've set like a five to 10 year goal to do that. Mm -hmm. And part of that was building the outfitter guy, but it was birthed from my experience as an adult onset hunter uh, going on my first guided hunts, which were fantastic. Didn't harvest an animal. However, the customer experience, something that I'm pretty intimately familiar with just from my corporate world, was something to be... Lagging uh, behind. Yeah, it was a situation where I went to Google or bookyourhunt.com or there's a company called the Outfitter Services. They do a great job of aggregating all the different outfitters around. You can choose your weapon, your animal, time of year, what you want to do, and they'll give you outfitters essentially that do that. That's fantastic. That's what I did. But when I landed in the lap of the outfitter, I talked to somebody who didn't really want to talk to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I called and they're like, yep, you know, we got this archery elk. We'll see in eight months. You know, the cost is high. So let's say it's six grand, seven grand, which is the average cost of a Western big game hunt, not including airfare, gear, everything else. To a P.O. box, seven states away from where you're going to be hunting via check and no communications after that. So I sent that first check and thought I got scammed. They're like, well, there's three grand down the drain. Just old school. Yeah. yeah. And being an adult onset hunter where I was just getting in the mountain tough, you know, I was just starting to learn how to try and bugle. Um, you know, four years later, we're just getting there. Um, and it was difficult. I wanted answers. I saw it as an investment. It was an investment in my education and going out here, but with an investment, you expect some sort of return. Mm-hmm. So I would email and it would take weeks. And by the time I showed up, I was unsure if I was actually going to be fed because there was no information. So my wife packed me 10 cliff bars and I was kind of like crossing my fingers. I'm like, well, if they don't have food here, I'm going to be really screwed. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I showed up and it was fantastic. They had a wall tent, you know, they had somebody cooking. It was an amazing experience, but I'm like, why can't we translate what that experience is like to a hunter? So what we've built is just a software platform. It's a B2B to C, meaning we sell to outfitters. Outfitters can log in, upload all their information, waivers, you know, their payment plans, you know, as much as they want about the service, meaning like it could be pictures of wall tents. It could be like, here's how you steer a horse, you know, right, left, center, things that people coming from out east likely don't know. Um, And then they can onboard hunters from our application. So now if, you know, Dustin, you look up an outfitter and you say, I want to go with you, they're going to go on the back end of the outfitter guy, type in, okay, Dustin wants to do a muzzleloader elk hunt in October. We cover that, great, hit send then you as a hunter are going to get an email from us. And that email is going to say, hey, welcome, Dustin. Yeah, we're the outfitter guy. We're going to carry you along this journey, which is anywhere from eight months to two years, likely from the time you book a hunt. For sure, yeah. yeah there's a long gap period there, especially when you start to get into like tags that are draw only or you know, have low odds. Yeah. And then you build a profile, you pay through there, you upload any of the documentations you need to, think hunting license, archery permit, things like that. Um, and then after that moment, we take over the customer service. So you're going to get emails from us with things like, Hey, you know, we see Dustin that you're in Charleston, South Carolina at sea level. You're about to be hunting sheep at 11,000 feet in Alaska in two months. Have you done your lunges? You know, <laughs> here's a discount code for mountain tough. You might want to get on the 4570 and waste two hours a day. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> it's that approach. So we're going to be doing affiliate discount codes along the way getting them ready um, because it's already a low percentage chance pursuit. We want to help optimize that. So we yeah. want them to focus on the hunt, do everything you can so that they thrive once they get there. Yeah. And they're, they're not feeling like alone and abandoned, abandoned on that like eight to two year waiting period. Yep. And you know, so that also helps our outfitters, you know, repeat customers, you know, that experience it should be a white glove experience mm-hmm. because, you know, we were at the Western Hunt Expo in Salt Lake City in February, and it's 
crazy the amount of money people spend on hunts. Yeah. You know, the average is 7000 for a you know, Western big game elk hunt, but it goes up to, what did we hear? What did that tag go for? $400,000. I mean, that's yeah. the exception, not the rule. But if you're looking at sheep hunting up in BC, you're looking at $60,000, $70,000. And you can touch on African, you know, high fence in Texas. The list goes on and on, but they all need this customer experience um, that should go along with that amount of money people are willing to pay. That's so cool because I think, like, from my viewpoint what i've seen is there's so many great outfitters they're great at posting a Mm -hmm. world-class experience in terms of like the camp the courses the backcountry the knowledge meals the knowledge and most of those guys that i'm friends with are world-class at hosting in that kind of environment but a lot of times they're like a third generation mm-hmm. outfitter and they have like sticky notes in their office that are people they need to call back or email back just because usually that side of the business isn't their cup filler. Mm-hmm. Their cup filler is outside doing hard work. And so some of those communication points can get just dropped through the cracks, even though they're still going to provide a world-class hunt. Yep, I could definitely see that gap of a few tools to make sure it's a world-class customer experience on the front end. Yeah, and that's the goal, right? I mean, all these outfitters, and you know, I've had the opportunity to go on several now, which is amazing. And to your point, I've, I haven't had a bad experience with an outfitter. These guys and gals just bust their mm-hmm. rumps to get out there and give you a great experience. That includes going out and scouting. That includes packing in wall tents that includes packing in food and making sure everything's going to be a great experience so you can do the thing which is focusing on the hunt but you can't erase people's anxiety leading up to that if they've never done it or it's a new area Mm -hmm. and if we can help alleviate that and just make that experience seamless from the time someone goes to google or bookyourhunt.com all the way to when they tag out or don't Mm -hmm. that's great for the industry great yeah i mean we've all had tough customer experience things come up in our life and we've all had that smooth seamless customer experience Mm -hmm. and that's night and day difference for sure yeah and then for those who are adult onset hunters if you have the means i highly recommend going on a guided hunt like that was my secret sauce to beating down that learning curve Mm -hmm. i felt like a toddler with my guide like we still talk today he gives me grief about it but it was literally like well why did you step that way you know why did you pause you know yeah. all these questions that i wanted or would have asked as a kid growing up in a family that hunted that i never got the chance to it was this immersive experience to you know really learn yeah i think the the amount of like knowledge you can get from that is insane we used to do the same thing growing up when i was young like we were traveling the world um fly fishing because my dad was really passionate about fly fishing Mm -hmm. and kind of his secret strategy was like if we were gonna fly to alaska to fly fish he would always book a guide on that first day and gain as much knowledge as he could and then we would go we'd go fish on our own for like day two through Mm -hmm. seven but he wanted that like immersive experience right away on the front end to to cut out a lot of those rookie mistakes and oh, yeah. it, it definitely was a game changer yeah you know those first two years i did guided hunts and then now i've been kind of doing diy and also the the framework of my relationship in the industry has changed because now i have friends who've been doing it for a long time and if you have those access to people mm-hmm. by all means take that but if you don't if you're like me coming from a world where you just didn't have any exposure Guided hunts are genuinely a great way to really, like I said, beat the learning curve down. For sure. And are you hoping to get the outfitter guide in the beta version into the hands of some outfitters this year? Yes. So we have five outfitters that are signed up for our beta, and we're actually onboarding them in the next week or two. So they'll be uh, hopefully booking 2024 hunts if they have any left. Um, through our program pretty soon. And then, you know, we 
met a lot of outfitters at the Western Hunt Expo. We've had a lot of interest. We have a lot of people on our wait list um, to purchase the software and give it a whirl. So hopefully it'll be alive and in the in the wild <laughs> in the next few weeks. You know, uh, <laughs> development is always a bear, but we're we're yeah. fourth in inches, like I said, and it's uh, it's an exciting time. And uh, we do have a website, so if you go to www.theoutfitter.guide, you can check it out. You can look at our pretty little faces on there and uh, read a little bit about it. We have a few blogs about, you know, problems we're trying to solve, things like that. And I'm guessing you're learning a tremendous amount of uh, getting a startup off the ground as well. Yeah, well, I, I've had a little bit of experience with that before. I've started a startup 13 years ago that failed miserably, <laughs> which got me into my job in product management in the first place. Um, I did found a live streaming company of all things, an oral and maxillofacial surgery um, that we had for six years, and then it exited. Um, so I have a little bit of experience there, mm -hmm. but it's it's never the same, and it's never easy. It's talk about mental toughness and a mental grind. Yeah, you know, you're trying to get people to work for what nothing. Um, yeah. So you're trying to bring this cobble of really well talented individuals to deliver a product that you believe or hypothesize will you know hit the market and do well but you don't know till you do it so you're trying to get people ultimately you you're working for free your you know, partners are working for free and all for the passion of the idea yeah it is and the good thing is everybody that's involved with the companies are hunters some are guides all have like a technical background so it's a pretty cool little group of guys that we've got building it out and you're you're still doing quite a bit of jujitsu. Yeah. Well, yeah. So th this breaks my heart a little bit. So my wife and I now have two young kids. Um, we had an accident up at the cabin. I don't know if I told you about you did, that. Yeah, yeah, that was crazy. Yeah. So my wife got taken out by our Kane Corso dog at the cabin with no cell service when she was seven months pregnant. Fell, cracked her head, sounded like a twenty-two rifle, went off, um, no cell. So I had to run back and get life flight helicopter to come in. And we were in Boise in the trauma center within 50 minutes of the accident, nine staples, a couple stitches later, some bad vertigo. She was fine. Wow. Baby was fine. Um, but it was a wake up call for me a little bit where with us having a seven month old and a two year old now, um, we ended up buying a second house in Boise, which, you know, again, very grateful that we were able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but we, the winter has been tough. Our road's been avalanched in a lot, so we have spent a lot more time in Boise this winter. Yep. So double-edged sword kills the soul a little bit when you want to be up at the cabin and around <laughs> everything you built, um, cut into trapping season a little bit more. But it has afforded me, on the bright side, to be back in the gym a lot. So tons of jujitsu, which is something I've done for 15 years, wrestled, and getting back on the mats is a great therapy when you're yeah. stuck in the city. Yeah, probably great therapy for getting through just the stress relief of a startup and stuff oh, yeah. like that as well. Oh, yeah, and, and pretty much everybody in the startup does jujitsu. Yeah. That's actually where I met two of the guys was at our jujitsu gym, and then we became hunting buddies. So it's all kind of tied together a little bit. Yeah, what a great place to meet like-minded like yep. people looking to do something hard, mental toughness, grit. Yeah. And it's something that's hard to find. Right. And you and I have talked about it before. It's when you find and I hate this word, so I'm going to say it and I'm not going to regret it, even though my eyes tell a different story <laughs> when you find a tribe. Yeah. And uh, it's important. And my dad gave me one piece of advice as a kid and I stuck with it. He's like, pick good friends. And I've always had a very small number of close friends, but those close friends have been a staple and like a backbone in my entire life mm -hmm. through all the ups and downs, you know, deaths, divorces, you know, they'll everything. And, you know, that is key. And then growing that. And when you can find a group or a pursuit, whether that's jujitsu, whether that's ultra running, whether that's, you know, fitness to get ready for the backcountry, whether that's hunting, mm -hmm. if you can find that, the likelihood of that small group having some really great people in there that you want to set, you know, your or model your life after is very high. Yeah. And it's 
exponential growth from a spiritual perspective, from a physical perspective, when you can find that in between jujitsu, you know, backcountry hunting. Like I've been very lucky that my passions and interests have always aligned with things that just produce really tough, gritty people. So true. Yeah. In those tough, gritty environments, you can see people's true character. It weeds people out fast. Yeah. Yeah. It weeds out the wrong people really fast. And then like the people that'll stick, stick with it and with you through those experiences turn out to be the people you want to surround yourself around anyways. Like you see it so often in backcountry hunts, like the the crew that'll come help you pack out a bowl mm-hmm. and that'll drop whatever they're doing to go make that happen or like friends for life, not only because they'll do that, but mm-hmm. then when you're out there going through adversity together, it's just wild. Yeah, adversity breeds a different type of friendship. Yeah. And like I said, I feel very lucky from like wrestling at a young age, like, it was a group of guys suffering. It sucked every day. <laughs> and then you'd go out in front of a crowd in a cold gym in a singlet and have a 50-50 shot of getting pinned in front of your girlfriend <laughs> and embarrassed. And it, it's, it breeds a humility and it breeds this like understanding that you need to be fed humble pie every day mm-hmm. and seek out humble pie. Yeah. And that workout you wrote today was definitely a piece of that. Thank you. That that was a good chunk of adversity. I was getting smoked today. That was a whole pie, yeah. not just a piece. <laughs> Doing hard things every day is so valuable. It's wild just how it makes 90% of all these other things that normally would stress me out just seem like non-issues. Yeah. Like it just puts things into perspective really quick. Yeah, and then when you have that monkey mind go off, as we all have it, when the stress bug starts eating at you, like it, it's a trigger for me. It's like, okay, I need to go work out. Or my wife, yeah, she sees it. She's like, you need to go out to the gym or yeah. go out in the woods or something. But it becomes a great coping mechanism at the mm-hmm. end of the day. It's like you can start to feel when you're off. And usually for me, that coincides when I've been a little lazy or missed a workout or you know done something that I shouldn't have done, had too many to drink, something like that. And yeah. It's a good fix. Yeah. Yeah. The mind body connection is so powerful. If I could just figure out the sleep thing, then I'd have it, uh, have it going. Yeah. Well, I'm stoked you came over to the lab, man. That was, that was really awesome that you just loaded up and packed up, drove over here, slept in your car, slept in the car, about to do it on the way home, (laughs) but man, it was a blast. The lab looks great. You guys are doing amazing things and I'm excited to see where it goes in another four years and where everybody's at. Yeah. It's crazy. Just it's mountain tough. has been a crazy journey and we just keep evolving and it's been, it's been hard, but it's been really, really like an, um, an amazing journey. It's been awesome. Yeah. Like you said, you're building a factory, churning out amazing people physically mentally and i'm sure it reaches even further than you know when you're reaching into people's living rooms and pulling them off their couch and making them do a ton of lunges so yeah it's it's awesome to see cool zach well i appreciate it thanks so much awesome